Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm Richard Delavan. And I'm Claire Brady. Welcome back to Wicked Problems, a show about climate tech. The intersection of capital and technology, people and politics, that will shape the future of the world and whether you'd want to live in it. So CDR is necessary. Uh, It's not sufficient. CDR is sometimes framed as this other thing or as this distraction from the real work of reducing emission. Right now we're at 420 ppm atmospheric CO2 concentration. We're going to be higher when net zero happens. I don't think anybody is actually content with 420 ppm. If you think that's too high, then you're sort of implicitly acknowledging the need for carbon removal. People like to make these comparisons for solar energy, like how did this scale over time? I think the bigger issue is that many people who have been working in the climate space for a long time, the environmental space for a long time, they like nature. Engineering got us into this problem, but it's really unfair of us to place the burden on nature. This is a lot of carbon dioxide we're talking about. I tend to think about decarbonization and CDRs, two sides of the same coin. Decarbonization addresses future emissions. CDR addresses legacy emissions. We really need to thoroughly vet these approaches now and figure out soon what works, what works well, what doesn't work well. King Charles has just officially kicked off COP28 in Dubai. As I've tried to say on many occasions, unless we rapidly repair and restore nature's unique economy based on harmony and balance, which is our ultimate sustainer, our own economy and survivability will be imperiled. Records are now being broken so often that we are perhaps becoming immune to what they are really telling us. We are taking the natural world outside balanced norms and limits and into dangerous uncharted territory. We are carrying out a vast, frightening experiment of changing every ecological condition all at once at a pace that far outstrips nature's ability to cope. As the conference unfolds over the next 12 days, 
world leaders will turn themselves into pretzels, trying to find a form of words that will both encourage a tripling of renewables, while also somehow avoiding the fact that after 28 of these meetings, the world has never agreed to actually do something about the principal cause of climate change, burning fossil fuels. A lot of heat will be generated about a related debate. How much stock should we put in technologies that will actually try to reverse some of the climate damage? It's too late to stop. Carbon dioxide removals, or CDR, is a set of technologies that physically pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. To some, the very idea of spending time and money on it makes them deeply suspicious, because they worry it will distract attention or funding from other climate solutions, or delay phasing out fossil fuels to reduce emissions. To others, they're crucial because the climate doesn't care about the increasingly untenable rhetoric from COP28 in Dubai about staying under 1.5 degrees C. But they don't see 1.5 degrees C being breached as a reason to give up, as Susan Joel Hassel said on this program a few weeks ago. It's not like at below 1.5 we're safe and beyond 1.5 we're screwed. It's more like we're on the CO2 highway. And if you miss your exit on a highway, what do you do? You slow down and you get off at the next exit. To the optimists, carbon removals are just that. Because even if we triple renewables, double the rate of energy efficiency improvement, and do all the other things to get to net zero, we will still need to remove CO2 from the atmosphere that's already up there. Even if, as we really hope, climate scientists like Mike Lee Mann who say that temperature rise will stop when we stop emitting, are correct. If we've already passed the point of no return on exceeding 1.5, we need to get off at the next available exit and turn around. And that means drawing down CO2 as quickly as our ingenuity and resources will allow once we've done all the other things. So we spoke to Kara Maizano, a research scientist and one of the leaders of the CDR initiative at RMI, formerly known as the Rocky Mountain Institute. Dr. Maizano has a PhD in physics from UCAL Davis and studied the secrets of the universe and cosmology before changing path to study the effects of climate change and now focused on how to remove the greenhouse gases that cause them from the atmosphere. Maizano is part of the team at RMI that just released a 400-paged Applied Innovation Roadmap on 32 different pathways for carbon removals. It's aimed at policymakers, VC investors, and other funders, and other researchers, shining a light on the various technology readiness levels of different flavors of CDR, covering everything from the many different kinds of direct air capture, to enhanced rock weathering, to increased ocean alkalinity, to good old-fashioned trees, and other biomass, to various ways to store the CO2 captured. Maizano's team isn't putting ads in the New York Times to get you to buy carbon removal credits from her company or telling you what companies to invest in. RMI's report is a good faith effort to report the state of the science and technology readiness of the various different types of CBR. That's why we wanted to talk to her. Here's our conversation. We're super excited to be here with Kara Maizano from RMI. Kara, very welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Kara, you're working with the artist formerly known as Rocky Mountain Institute, now called RMI. Um, you're based in Paris, as I understand it, which is a long way from Colorado. How'd you come to be there? I originally moved here during grad school. It was a while back. Yeah, I've been here for a bit. And you are one of the leaders in RMI working on the carbon removal sector. So maybe can you tell us, first of all, let's just back up a little bit. 
and talk about carbon removals, why it's gotten so much attention lately, and is it really going to be necessary as part of the mix as we head towards trying to reduce emissions? Yeah, so thanks for the question. So CDR is necessary. Uh, it's not sufficient if we want to reduce net emissions and stay within carbon budgets. It's necessary if once we've reduced emissions as much as we can, we still want to meet net zero targets across hard to bait sectors. And it's necessary if we ever want to reduce historical emissions. CDR is sometimes framed as this other thing or as this distraction from the real work of reducing emissions. But I tend to think about decarbonization and CDRs, two sides of the same coin. Decarbonization addresses future emissions. CDR addresses legacy emissions. The one is aimed at being responsible going forward, and the other is aimed at taking responsibility for the past. So in some sense, it's the same problem, but viewed from different time perspectives. Right. Something else that I was looking at earlier was the role of the thawing permafrost. Even if human emissions go to net zero, that for decades we are going to experience some scenario where both methane and CO2 will continue to be emitted. Some estimates indicate that it might be as high as that of China by 2080 and be there for decades of having more emissions. So that it just seems to bolster the case that even if you were to grind technological human civilization to a halt, that you would still need to find some way to address these emissions if we're trying to keep temperatures below a certain warming threshold. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And I think that we have human emissions, but there are other emissions that, um, like you said, that are caused by us indirectly, but they're still going to continue. So there, there are multiple reasons why we need carbon removal, not just to cover the tracks of people who are currently emitting right now. And so because you, Kara, have a lens that's across the different pathways. I mean, we've had a lot of media attention and investor attention towards uh, direct air capture. Um, we've had, to some extent, we've seen some interest welling up about mineralization, about so having taken some of the CO2 out of the atmosphere, what you do with that, uh, as opposed to necessarily just sticking it into a disused gas well, uh, perhaps converting it into rock. What are the other pathways that you, as you look across the entire spectrum of different techniques of actually carbon removal? Yeah, so that's a good question, actually. <laughs> we look across all CDR pathways. We don't have favorites. Um, we try to look at all of them and assess risks and challenges. There are several. So we covered 32 different approaches, 29 of which are actually complete removal. Um, the other three are storage. So by complete removal, I mean um, that the process consists of a capture step to fix or remove the CO2 from the atmosphere, and then a storage step where either the entire CO2 molecule or at least the carbon atom is stored temporarily or permanently. And the range of options is actually quite wide from a scientific perspective. I'm never bored. Like There's constantly interesting new approaches and things to learn. We tend to break down what is a long list of, of approaches into three broad categories. The first is biogenic or biological-based CDR. Um, the second is geochemical CDR, so anything with like rocks and minerals. And um, the third category we call synthetic, but it's, you know, an engineered or technological category. And I can explain those categories further, but I, if I can make a quick point that we don't 
separate CDR approaches into nature-based and tech-based. And the reason for this is that uh, we think it's a false distinction. So many of the so-called nature-based solutions actually rely on technology in order to deploy at scale or to measure and monitor. They aren't really free of technology. And then many of the so-called engineered solutions are actually based on nature. So um, this point is especially relevant in the case of mineralization-based approaches. This is a natural process. It's existed on Earth longer than plants and animals have. It might be the only process that pulls CO2 from the atmospheres of other planets. So those are untouched by humans, very natural. So we don't like to split things along this nature-tech divide. I don't really think it exists. Right. Can I just kind of double-click on that for a moment, Kara? From an investment point of view, why things that are more branded as tech-based seem to have attracted more attention is, I, I suppose, a couple of things. One is there's a perception that something that's tech-based is going to be more measurable, and also that the technology learning curve on that is going to be, you know, that there's more ability to put your finger on the scale with money in order to be able to hasten a curve, as opposed to the things that are more traditionally thought as being core nature-based solutions, like essentially just plant more trees, do as fast as you can, maybe even at the margins, engineers, genetically engineer mangroves, so they'll suck up more carbon faster. But really, you know, people like the idea, and I guess what you're saying is that that, that idea is not necessarily accurate, but this framing that, well, I understand technology, and therefore, I also understand how I can put money to work to be able to scale solutions faster using that. So is that, do you think that's, that's something that's played into why that tech nature distinction has become a, a thing? I would maybe argue the opposite. Um, so I think you make really good points. And I think that for a very small segment of the population who you know, who thinks about things in those terms that, yeah, like the tech-based solutions, um, you might be able to put them on a cost curve and watch cost decline, or you might be able to sort of watch them scale the same way, you know, people like to make these comparisons for solar energy, like how did this scale over time? But I think that the bigger issue is not that. I think the bigger issue is that many people who've been working in the climate space for a long time, the environmental space for a long time, they like nature. Engineering got us into this problem. But it's really, for me, you know, I like nature too, but it's really unfair of us to place the burden on nature. I mean, this is a lot of carbon dioxide we're talking about. Can you maybe, just for the benefit of everybody, just remind us how the scale of the problem, right? So currently we're looking at 50 billion tons of CO2 equivalent per year in terms of emissions. Is that about, yeah. do I have that math about right? Approximately, and a, yeah. And historically since 1750, it's probably the total that we've pushed up there is about a thousand. Is that right? That number, I actually don't know. But these numbers are so big that like, but yeah, let's go with that giant number. <laughs> giant, like. Um, and so to your point, even if you wanted to rely on ecosystem services to be able to do a lot of the heavy lifting here, there's a moral case that we need to be able to actually provide the kind of, or just a practical case to say that we cannot assume that natural systems in their own time without any assistance or support or acceleration are going to simply do the job for us. Is that basically what you're saying? Um, I'm saying they're not going to do it on any human time scale, right? So right. you do have mineralization um, 
that takes place over long, long time periods. So the Earth will eventually, over thousands and thousands of years, pull down the extra CO2 and regulate itself. Um, I don't think anybody on the planet wants to wait for that to happen. And so we need to accelerate that process. Got it. I mean, that's the whole point of carbon removal is to accelerate that process. Okay. Let's take a step back and give us, Kara, maybe your story, your background. You came to Paris to go to grad school. Um, how did you come to be involved in working on carbon removals? And maybe tell us a little bit about the role that you're doing with RMI. Yeah. So my background's actually in physics. I started off studying cosmology and then particle physics. And then after I did my PhD, I did research with a team of environmental epidemiologists characterizing air pollution and other environmental exposures. And then that work overlapped with some you know, wider impacts climate change will have on public health. And then just as an aside, when we talk about climate impacts on public health, most people think about heat waves, which are clearly a big concern. Air pollution is a big concern, of course. There are many other health risks that people don't think about right away. So including the spread of infectious disease to new areas like dengue fever or malaria. On the U.S., we have Lyme disease. Extreme weather events are obviously problematic with drought, water, food security. Migration is a big issue for public health and social health. I think we're looking at several health crises and social crises as a result of migration that will take place. So, and it's not just an ethical issue, right? It's an economic issue. Labor capacity changes due to excess heat and malnutrition are going to have huge knock-on consequences to, to well-being. So um, back to your question, I actually came into CDR because um, I was thinking about these health problems and I wanted to mitigate that. So if my thinking was, if what is driving these extreme events, the extreme heat, the food scarcity and all of that, is this excess concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, then I'm going to focus on getting rid of that carbon dioxide and get those concentrations down. So that's, that's how I ended up where I'm at now. Right. And tell us a little bit more about the approach that RMI has taken, the interest that RMI has taken. I've been following RMI since being an Amory Lovins fanboy 20 years ago. You know, that was kind of my gateway drug into really looking at this this space and also taking the lens that, you know, A, we both can and should accelerate things to do things faster. You know, we shouldn't just rely on markets, nor should we just rely on the state that, you know, there's a, a way to be able to bring, bring all the forces to bear that actually the world can be a lot better, healthier, and things can be more efficient and also be just better off in lots of different ways from an energy security perspective. And that was very attractive 20 years ago. Tell us about how RMI has evolved to be looking at at this space as part of, a, of the other activities that RMI is looking at? So I came into RMI about a year and a half ago with uh, an existing team. We were part of a small nonprofit called Climate Map, and we came into RMI to build up a larger carbon dioxide removal initiative, which we are doing. Part of the reason for that is, like you said, RMI has been doing a lot of great work for for decades. We'd like to leverage that and apply that to to carbon removal. RMI is also working closely with a lot of large industries. And CDR is not something that needs to be done on the side by a bunch of startups. It really needs to be included into wider net zero strategies across the board. That's kind of why we came into RMI. RMI has this paradigm of think, do, and scale. So we've done a lot of this thinking. Um, 
we've done a lot of thinking in terms of roadmaps and academic papers and um, insight briefs. So we've done a lot of that work. We continue to do that work. We've got an upcoming roadmap, um, should be coming out next week, fingers crossed. Um, so we've done a lot of road mapping, but also we're trying to get involved in other things and get some of these things actioned. We've got a feasibility study for one of the direct air capture hubs, and uh, we're starting to get into policy work and other things. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that I, I noticed that the Energy Transitions Commission report that came out uh, last week, I think, it might have been a week before, where the CEO of RMI is one of the commissioners along with a wide spectrum of people from industry, everyone from Vattenfall to um, to Shell, to the We Mean Business Coalition, to others. So it's, a, it's an interesting everybody at the till approach that seems consistent with RMI's philosophy over the years. So tell us a little bit more about this report. Yeah, sure. Um, so my team has been working on what we are calling the Applied Innovation Roadmap for Carbon Dioxide Removal. Um, this is intended to provide comprehensive, that we cover lots of pathways, um, comprehensive and objective perspective on how we can best advance technical readiness across these pathways. And like I said, three of them are storage, but 29 are complete carbon removal pathways. So this isn't just forests and, tr you know, trees and machines. There are, are several options. And then we try to present a set of activities, including activities related to piloting and demonstration that can be undertaken by different stakeholders. So policymakers, public and private funders, researchers, startups, innovators. Um, we try to be very transparent about the risks, but also the opportunities across each, each of these approaches. Our goal is to help unlock funding for CDR and get more pilots and demonstrations going. We believe that we're going to need many different CDR approaches deployed in order to meet climate targets. So like the silver buckshot idea versus the silver bullet. Um, but from this perspective, we, we really need to thoroughly vet these approaches now and figure out soon what works, what works well, what doesn't work well, um, and by work well, I don't just mean that the approach removes carbon dioxide as intended, but also that it does so safely. It does so in a way where there's an overall net benefit. Net benefit. So we're trying to solve problems and not cause new ones. We want to make sure that when we deploy, that these approaches are solving problems. Got it. What are some of the pathways that would be in this report that you wouldn't have included if it was being done, say, three years ago? Are there new things that we're looking at to, to stretch and get, make sure that they're getting piloted, getting funding, uh, as you say, to make sure that the buckshot approach has many different options and potential pathways? Yeah, I like this question, actually, because I think about this sometimes. There's a lot of different... So director capture, first of all, is not just one thing. It's many things. Um, there are many ways to directly... Maybe say more about that. Or two. So, um, yeah, there's just different materials. There's different sorbents. There's different... Um, ways of regenerating that material. So the range of DAC approaches is much larger than it would have been three years ago because we have a lot of different startups and companies. But um, And so the two, just on that, I mean, like, so for example, the two high-profile projects at the moment that people might have read about or heard about would be Oxy's big plan in West Texas and Heirloom's plant in California. And they use very different methodologies for DAC. Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. They use, um, one actually uses, what one of the things I was going to mention 
um, that would be different now versus three years ago is with maybe one exception, most reports don't include anything about carbon mineralization um, or the geochemical approaches. Heirloom uses a geochemical approach to do direct air capture. There's a lot of different ways that categories overlap. For some of the geochemical approaches, we just didn't have enough data to even include them three years ago. So they're not included in the IPCC scenarios. They're not included in many of these big reports. There was a National Academies report from 2018 that does cover um, geochemical CDR approaches very well. Um, it's very detailed. You know, a lot's happened since then, but also, you know, the, the information in that re report still holds. So things like enhanced rock weathering. Right. Um, yeah. Can we geek out a little bit about some of the different flavors of that, right? So we both know undo, enhanced rock weathering a little bit. So just very briefly to explain that process and, and what makes it different from, from some of the things. So it's essentially taking a bunch of basalt, crushing it up, and then seeding fields where it's going to accelerate that absorption process and take draw down carbon from the atmosphere. Is that about right? It's, yeah, yeah, that's right. So you can take crushed, you can use basalt, but you can also use other minerals, like such as olivine, which is um, a very pretty green mineral. Um, you can use elastinite. You can use, there are several different options to, to do enhanced weathering. And the idea is you crush this stuff up so you increase the surface area, you spread it over soils, and it doesn't have to be agricultural soils, although that's the easiest place to do it. You spread it on soils, and it mixes in the soil where there's a lot of CO2 and water already. So the, the thing you need, so you need the rock, but you also need water and air or CO2. Um, that's all you need. Uh, this process happens naturally. It's exothermic, meaning that it prefers, it gives off energy, means that it's in a lower energy state. It prefers to be reacted, if, that's, if that makes any sense to anyone. So it, it, all you have to do is spread the rock dust and let nature take its course. Um, and then what you end up with is uh, dissolved bicarbonate. Um, and that's in the, the groundwater. Eventually, it will make its way to rivers and to the ocean. And then it's stored for thousands and thousands of years as part of the, the slower geological carbon cycle. It's in water, but it's stored for a long time. Okay. And are there other, other pathways that, again, you wouldn't have included a few years ago that, you know, ones that you're, you're paying some more attention to and want other people to know about? So the enhanced weathering is interesting. There are a lot of different carbon mineralization approaches. You can use industrial waste. As an example, there's a company using steel slag. So it's industrial waste from steel. It's very reactive. And they're using it as gravel, like gravel roads and parking lots and things. And it'll just kind of mineralize in place, right? Like that kind of stuff wasn't covered before. Um, there are a lot of electrochemical approaches that would not have been covered before. So that's accelerating this weathering mineralization process by splitting, say, for example, seawater or brine, wastewater. Um, wastewater is another interesting example, but I'll finish my thought first. But you can use electrochemistry to split liquid into an acid and a base, and you can use the acid to weather the rock, and you can use the base to capture more CO2 from the air, and then you combine them back. And in some cases, you can actually extract more like heavy metals out of the mineral, out of the rock that you started with. Um, 
So those are really interesting approaches. And I'm, you know, sort of waiting to see more pilot studies there. Wastewater approaches I find really interesting because you can add alkaline minerals or materials to wastewater and it will react with the CO2 that's already in the wastewater. It'll bring the water from being, you know, very acidic to more neutral or alkaline. But when this wastewater is released into the ocean, for example, sometimes it's released as it's too acidic and don't, I'm not an expert here, but I find these approaches pretty interesting as well. Right. And the report's going to give people an insight about how to look at some of these different pathways, these different technologies. Basically, if I'm a, I'm a VC, I'm a foundation, I'm somebody else, and we look at this report, you know, what is this going to help me to actually, you know, be smarter about? Yeah. So the first thing we do is a risk assessment. Is this scalable, right? Do we have enough materials? Do we have enough feedstock? Do we have enough land, energy, water? Is the measurement that's used, the measurement techniques or monitoring technique or modeling in some cases, are those scalable? Like, can you scale that? Because it's different to measure, you know, if you measure something in a lab, awesome. You need to do this like outside and in large settings. So not always outside, but definitely large settings. Um, and that's a different problem than, you know, a simple measurement in a lab. Or I shouldn't say simple. I don't, I'm not saying they're all simple. But um, so, yeah, we measure against scalability. We measure against um, like cost, for example. Do we think that this approach has a pathway to get below $100 a ton, which is just a number. Um, it's not a magic number. It's just a goal. I think it's the number that gets thrown around a lot, but also it's a goal set out by the DOE. They've got a carbon negative shot. Um, so we, we, we said, okay, let's choose this number and, and um, see if we think we can get costs down. You're, you'll tell me if I'm completely off here. But the 100 number, other than being a nice round number, which you know humans could get their head around as being like, oh, okay, there's a target. It's an over-under. Whether you're an investor or you are just Joe Soap trying to figure out whether or not we're making progress toward the goal. But it is related to the, I mean, the price and the emission trading scheme currently for carbon in Europe, right? Like, that's basically about $100 a ton right now. So there's some relationship to that, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that having a, a goal is important. Um, I think that costs are going to be very important when we need to pay for, you know, gigatons of this stuff. Like, where's the money going to come from? If it's too expensive, we're not going to be able to do as much carbon removal. So there's that aspect. But in terms of like voluntary carbon markets or compliance markets, like you mentioned, or even like eventual procurement by governments. We need the cost to come down so that these approaches are competitive and that people pay for them and that they're happy to pay for them. I mean, in some cases, you're going to have companies that do have net zero targets, but they don't have this giant budget to spend on CDR, right? They're not getting anything out of it except for maybe, you know, a public perception boost. I mean, that's one one of the differences between um, comparing costs for solar, everybody needs and wants energy. Everybody's already willing to pay for energy where we don't have that right. in CDR. Yeah. Some people speculate that a carbon take back obligation would be a way of forcing that market, you know, whether or not you're, if you're a fossil producer or you are some other heavy emitter that having a regulatory framework where we go from initially disclosure to one where there's a, a polluter pays principle where there's an idea that if there is a viable 
economically justifiable pathway for carbon removals, that bundling that into some future regime might not be completely crazy as a way of actually also getting it to the point where I saw the emission, sorry, the Energy uh, Transitions Commission suggesting 10 gigatons by 2050 of removals being necessary to, you know, achieve some of these goals, which is a, a massive amount compared to the, what, less than um, 40 million in total tons of removals, including traditional kind of traditional <laughs> CCS um, that we're at at the moment. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think the number that gets thrown around the most is 10 gigatons by 2050 or one gigaton by 2030. Those are tall orders. Yeah, the challenge is enormous there. If if that's where we're going to get to, we, we better get to work, first of all. We're probably going to need new pathways we haven't thought of yet. And, you know, resource-wise, this doesn't happen for free. Even the mineralization, right? All you need is rocks and water and air, like. If you want to accelerate that, you you need to extract a lot of rocks. In some cases, we can get lucky and use industrial waste, including mine tailings, which are already being extracted. So some mine tailings are very reactive, and they are um, a good feedstock for this. But in general, we're going to hit resource constraints. So yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. I was just wanted to come in on that final point there, where um when we listened to the talk by Undo, they were talking about where they were initially locating some of their operations where they could actually make use of existing flows of rocks. So is there anything within the report that looks at different clusters of where certain solutions might work better just based on the types of uh, resources that are available there? Has, has that kind of thinking happened yet or is that the next step really? Yeah, I'm not sure the best way to answer that question. That thinking is happening. Um, that's not in this report now, but we are thinking about that question. You know, our, our current roadmap really just looks at like each approach, doesn't matter where it is, but for each approach, how do you increase the technical readiness of this approach? Like, where are we today? What are we starting with? What do we think needs to happen in order to get to the next step? Is the next step, is this a lab scale approach at this point? Does it need pilot testing? Does it need demonstration testing? Have these approaches already been piloted? Like, what do we need to know in order to move it from a pilot scale to a larger demonstration scale? And then what do we need to know in order to move from a demonstration scale to like a commercial scale? Where should, you know, where should people put money if they want to advance a given pathway from point A to point B? Um, those are the kind of things, but they don't, um, they purposely aren't focused on geography because we want the roadmap to, to apply anywhere in the world. So, um, there is a different question to be answered on if I'm in this location, what are my options available based on my existing resources? And yes, that question is being addressed, um, right now, but I don't have much more to say on it just yet. We're trying to be agnostic geographically. Right. We started our conversation in the green room talking about the possibility that we will see people coming out of the woodwork as this sector gets more and more attention, as they as people see more and more investment flows, um, whether they be from kind of companies that are from a reputational perspective, deciding to make a noise about the fact that they put money in. There's a fund with many of Silicon Valley's biggest names that has been an early booster to help get pilots off the ground in terms of demand. 
And you can imagine seeing people come out of the woodwork that say, well, I can do this. I can show you how to do this for $40 a ton, right? So my question to you is what questions should we be asking of a company that comes out with a claim like that? They come out and say, I have a magic pathway uh, that says we can do this for $40 a ton uh, by 2030. What are the questions you're immediately going to have in your mind that people should be asking to, to run the rule over those claims? Yeah, good question. I'll see if I can give a decent answer. Um, I guess the first thing is like, does the does the science work out? Does the chemistry work out? Does the physics work out? Um, is this actually removing, right? That's basic. Um, but probably it does, right? And you can move forward. And then you might look at, you know, the economics and the supply chain. Like, are there enough materials to do this? Are you going to run into resource constraints? Like one of the things with biomass, for example, um, it's great that people are using waste biomass and they taking advantage of that, but there is a finite amount of waste biomass on the planet um, that everybody is laying claims to. I mean, I'm exaggerating, yeah. but we're going to run into resource constraints pretty quickly, I think. Right. Um, hopefully not too quickly. And so I, I would I would check that. Yeah, I would maybe assess against the, the same risks that, that I mentioned earlier. Like, is there, do we have enough energy? Do we have enough land? Do we have enough water? Right. Um, how are you going to measure this? So the energy, land, water measurement pieces, I think, are all crucial. So land-wise, I'm based here in the UK, and I've gotten to know that the metrics of land use measurements come in three sizes. One is a football pitch. The other is whales. The other is earth. So to get to a gigaton of removal using pathway X, you know, will require Y numbers of whales size areas in order to be able to make that work. And therefore you can look at whether that's realistic. On the energy stuff, one of the things that is constantly comes up, and I, I guess if I was looking at this, I might, you know, you could tell me if I'm wrong. My assumptions that I'd be asking to test would be, okay, what are you assuming in terms of, you know, cost per megawatt hour or kilowatt hour in terms of the electricity uh, required for your process, if that's the thing you're doing. Um, and therefore, and also where's the electricity coming from, right? So are you doing an on-site at a geothermal location where you're going to get access to cheap geothermal or hydro, or, you know, you're in the middle of, I don't know, even in the, the high Alps where you're going to get a lot of sun, weirdly, um, at a really good price. Uh, if you get your solar PV down to a certain point and you're just using it on site dedicated as opposed to say, ooh, uh, using the grid, which one of the bigger players who you're not going to bash, um, but uh, has said that, you know, that they're going to use the grid to supply the electricity to drive the process, which then gets you into this really weird dilemma that you're creating carbon pollution in order to remove the carbon um, and whether or not, you know, you're, that's focused into your calculations or not. So I guess these, these kind of, it's almost accounting we're sort of looking at at this point. So energy, land, water, measurement. Feedstock. Feedstock. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and I guess maybe as a, you know, I've been assuming this whole time that the, the life cycle assessment checks out, right? So that you do the carbon accounting and you're net negative. If you're not net negative, it's not carbon removal. That's a given. I think on the energy point though, this is, we're so early. This is all early stage and we do need to test things. And I think long-term using competing energy resources, uh, it, it, obviously we don't 
want to do that. But I think right now, while we're just trying to figure out if this stuff even works, there's not really another option, right? Um, you know, you, you don't know if something's going to work. You're not going to build an entirely new solar plant just for that. I, I guess there is a kind of, we have to make this work kind of approach because looking at the numbers, yes, everyone agrees, decarbonize energy grid, decarbonize electricity, decarbonize transport, decarbonize building heat, decarbonize agriculture. Um, and then once you've done all that, because we're still going to need a 20 year pathway of research and development in order to be able to do the last 10 gigatons or more, if you start taking into account permafrost thawing that aren't necessarily fully represented baked into a lot of these models, uh, or indeed aerosols, which uh, seem to have uh, crept into our, our models as well. Yeah, there's a lot to decarbonize. Like I said earlier, a lot of it's just looking at the problem, the same problem a different way. Um, do I want to remove my emissions going forward? Do I want to remove my, my past emissions? I want to do both. I think most people want to do both. Say we get to net zero, right? Because we've decarbonized a lot and we can remove this, whatever, say it's 10 gigatons at the end. Like right now we're at 420 ppm atmospheric CO2 concentration. We're going to be higher when this net zero happens. Um, but I don't think anybody's actually content with 420 ppm. Well, that's too high. So um, if you think that's too high, then you're sort of implicitly uh, acknowledging the need for carbon removal, because the only way to lower that is to remove the carbon. Now you can choose your method, right? There are several methods, including planting trees. There are several different ways to do that, but I think I think if people sit down and do the math, they're usually pretty convinced that this is necessary, it's important. Just picking up on that that point there, I suppose the the thing that this, you know, I found it really interesting learning more about this and I'm really looking forward to the report coming out. I think prior to starting to get to understand some of the innovations that were happening here, I don't think I would have understood perhaps the significance of the report and the work that's been happening. Having been involved in this and the work you've been doing, are you feeling more optimistic or are you still feeling quite pessimistic about the future? Where are you at at the moment? Yeah, I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, yeah. Tend to be optimistic by nature. I th I think we'll get a lot of this stuff done. There are a lot of really smart people working in this space. There are a lot of interesting and smart people coming into the space. There's a lot of innovation that's happened over the last few years, and there's a lot of innovation that still needs to be done. But also, there's a lot of money pouring in. In terms of just climate impacts in general, I might be more pessimistic. Um, I think we've already reached tipping points, and there. Are, communities that have been suffering already for years. So climate change is, is here and it's happening and that's not good, obviously. But I am optimistic that we will find solutions. Um, I'm cautious about how quickly those will be deployed. Well, thank you, Cara. It's been really interesting chatting to you uh, today and hearing all about the work. And uh, I think both Richard and I will be uh, looking and waiting with a bated breath for that report and we'll be we'll be delving into it and hope to explore that uh on the podcast going forward because i think it's an area which our listeners are going to be really interested in but before we finish up could we just we tend to ask all our guests a question um just asking you about things that have inspired you or perhaps changed your views so um that could be books films or podcasts 
So if you've got your, perhaps your top three recommendations for our listeners. I'll give you two that I can think of. Um, the first is, is a book and it's really the beginning of a book, the introduction chapter or the, the beginning chapters of ministry for the future. I don't know if you guys have read that from a public health perspective, that introductory chapter of, of the book really, really struck me. Um, I won't well, I mean, say what it's about Well, I mean, I think it's, I mean, look, I mean, Kim Stanley Robinson had a great interview with the FT, right? So, and I, I think it's pretty well known, the harrowing event that happens in Uttar Pradesh that's depicted in the beginning of the novel. So I, I don't think you're giving any spoilers away, but if you're uncomfortable talking about it, if that's the reason, then uh, then please feel free not to. But otherwise, yeah. for the listener, the, what, what are we talking I'm about? I'm uncomfortable talking about it. I mean, it's awful, right? But it's it's also plausible, um, which is so scary. To summarize, essentially 20 million people die in a extended heat wave, a wet bulb event, where the humidity and temperature are at such that over an extended period of time, humans just simply can't cope. Uh, the grid goes out. So there's no AC um, and our protagonist winds up in a situation that is absolutely just the visual is, is doesn't bear thinking about. So I'm, I'm not going to repeat that. But I do think that it's looking at what Kim Stanley Robinson, the author, has said about it, is that it brought to a much wider group of people in terms of policymakers, in terms of investors, in terms of business, that, oh, heat deaths are going to be a thing in ways that are going to be gruesome and awful and life-changing for and society-changing in ways that um, people had not anticipated. And so I think, so I think um, Robinson tends to describe that chapter as being a thought experiment and something that obviously we would wish to avoid, but that is one that depicting it in such a way that, you know, it's understandable some of the things that happen after that in the book, some extreme things from a political standpoint and from a uh, you know, perhaps even from a moral standpoint, some of the characters take actions that targeting, you know, aircraft and oil executives and long distance maritime shipping uh, in ways that perhaps we would not be able to morally justify or even couldn't even then, but would be inexplicable without being in the shadow of that horror. Right, right. So, yeah, I guess I think about it and I think about, um, like, how do you present that? Right? How do you prevent that from ever, ever happening? Yeah, it's been sitting with me since then. Um, and then uh, the other piece I'll recommend is uh, there's a New York Magazine article by David Wallace Wells on the case for climate reparations, um, which I thought was very good. Um, and I would recommend that. Great. Well, look, Kara, I mean, if you, you think of a third one, do send it to us and we can include it in the show notes. But listen, you've been absolutely spectacular. And thank you so much for joining us today from Paris. And we look forward to reading the report. Yeah. Thanks to both of you for having me on. It's been a really fascinating conversation. And I will definitely be looking uh, forward to receiving the report and reading it. Thanks so much. Our thanks to Kara Maizano for joining us. You can get the full report she and her team at RMI produced looking at 32 different carbon removal pathways now, and we'll put a link in the show notes. And if you did like our conversation, please share it and even leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps people find the show. As COP gets fully underway, Claire and I will be back with a conversation with Hannah Scott of Oxfordshire Green Tech and the Climate Tech Supercluster. 
We'll also have people speaking from Dubai, including Levidian CEO John Hartley, and we'll speak with Oxford researcher Suganda Srivastav about the mysterious case of the kidnapped solar inventor. To keep up with all this amazing content, subscribe to our newsletter at news.wickedproblems.uk, where you can also find past episodes and all our show notes. And you can become a subscriber to help support our work. For now, thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon.